0: It is the pastor's heart and Dominic Steele and why church planting is the Bible's answer to poverty with David Williams. David says in the Bible's view poverty is fundamentally relational. When you think about the Bible's terms for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien, they're all relational terms describing somebody who has lost relationships. But what might a theology of caring for the poor look like? David and his wife, Rachel, started serving as missionaries in Nairobi in Kenya back in 1999. More recently, he's been principal of the Australian Church Missionary Society Training College, St. Andrews Hall in Melbourne, where Australian missionaries are trained for six months or so before. Heading out to the field and has just given a provocative paper at the recent Anglican Aid Conference at Sydney's Moore Theological College under that heading, Why Church Planting is the Bible's Answer to Poverty. He's agreed to come and talk about it. David, uh, if we could start with your pastor's heart, because for you this issue is not academic, mm. not just academic. Your engagement in poverty goes right back to the slums of Kenya 20 years ago.
1: That's right. So, I was working in a theological college in Nairobi, Carlisle College, and we were asked to train some um, Anglican pastors whose um, parishes were either in or overlapping informal settlements in Nairobi. Uh, And out of that very early engagement, we realized that um, the informal settlements in Nairobi are home to probably 50% of the population. And actually, they're full of churches, um, not many Um, mainline Protestant denomination churches, but lots of informal churches and pastored um, by people with little or no theological training. And so from that early engagement, we started thinking about how we might do um, leadership training and theological education for pastors and church leaders from
0: informal settlement churches. Describe informal settlement to me.
1: So we landed up planting a classroom of our college into Kibera slum. So Kibera is um, a very densely crowded um, housing. Very it's usually uh, either mud floor, occasionally cement floor, mud and stick walls, tin roofs. All when I was there, all single storey, no high rise accommodation, um, no. Main sewerage, no mains water, so people are buying their water from standpipes in the street. No rubbish collection, um, and homes would have some electricity, but usually that was um, that wasn't a legal electrical supply. And in each um, home, you would have typically anywhere between six to fourteen people living in one or two rooms. So very, very densely populated people's homes. Inside were usually spotlessly clean, but as soon as you went out onto the street, there's a lot of rubbish, um, just a lot of people around. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the poverty and deprivation in the informal settlements was very, very significant.
0: Mm -hmm. And you've got informal churches and a problem with the prosperity gospel.
1: Yeah, so for many of those churches... um, What they knew, what they heard from TV ministries was prosperity theology. Um, And most of the prosperity theology that I heard in the informal settlements was what I would call well-intentioned but misguided. So I don't think it was deliberately trying to be deceptive or fleece people of money. Um, But if you like, it was reading the Bible very flat, you know, open the blessing cursing passages in Deuteronomy and going, well, Dominic, you want to be blessed? Do this. This this is what it says in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. We believe the Bible. So biblical theology then became very important as part of a a theological college response into that situation.
0: Mm. And you went in there, into this slum, informal settlement area, and you decided to try and work through local churches not through an NGO through the um, or even through the development department of a denominational structure. Um, that's quite a significant decision. How did that come about?
1: Well, I spent a long time trying to work out why I and my colleagues had gone down that route, because um, I think we had this theological sense that we wanted to work through local churches. But at least for me at that point, I hadn't perhaps really thought it through. Um, In lots of ways, it would have been much easier to have started an NGO. But actually, informal settlements uh, in Nairobi, at least, are full of churches. And so if you can work through those churches, you've got multiple small communities scattered uh, right throughout the slum. One of the slums in Nairobi, when I was there, had more churches than toilets. It's a
0: shocking statistic.
1: quite a shocking statistic. And I think we were also, um, having had a a presence in the informal settlements, perhaps a little bit disaffected from what very large NGOs, um, sometimes not always, but what they sometimes did. We, in our little area, we saw a big NGO come in and just start a pharmacy um, and offered free pharmaceutical care to the community. They they put out out of business all the local pharmacies, they all shut down. And then after I think about a year, this big NGO's um, funding ran out. So, they just closed it down and moved on. Um, and so, for a year, it was fantastic. People were getting free pharmaceutical care. But 18 months in, they were worse off than they had been at the start. Yeah, And I, I think I found that um, disheartening and working through local churches seemed to be a response to some of the problems that we saw being created.
0: You went through quite a journey then, theologically, trying to work out what the right response was to poverty. Maybe you could take us through some of that.
1: Yeah, yeah so I um, I had that experience in Kenya and was doing a lot of thinking about what it looks like to help local churches to engage with the poverty in their church family and then in their community in which they were working and serving and witnessing for the Lord Jesus. Um, Then I came to Australia and started um, teaching at St Andrews Hall, started uh, engaging with um, theological themes here and then that led me to want to try and think through more carefully Um, a a biblical theology of care for the poor because i felt like i I didn't see that Mm. and um i i knew i didn't have all the answers i I needed a brains trust to help me so uh, i asked mark thompson if i could pick the brains of the faculty at moore college Um, and then i i studied for some postgraduate research through fuller seminary um, that that led to a academic paper on all of this so what that enabled me to do was just to think through where theologically you locate care for the poor um and particularly asking that question from within the sydney anglican tradition
0: so what's the answer
1: well i think um i think the answer's complicated. Um, Nearly everyone I spoke to at Moore College um, initially answered that question. So when I said, where do you locate care for the poor theologically, nearly everyone I spoke to answered that question by saying it's part of our godliness um, as our response to the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, So as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, Um, Part of the outworking of my godliness is to care for the poor. And the parable of the Good Samaritan makes it clear that those I'm responsible for caring for um, might be my uh, most serious enemy. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a wonderful thing, I think. Um, My question then following on from that is to then explore a little bit about whether there's a corporate component to caring for the poor. And I I think that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a sense clearly in which care for the poor is located not just as an individual responsibility, but also as a corporate responsibility. Where do you get that? Um... So in the, in the Old Testament, I think one of the things that the covenant document is doing is asking um, Israel uh, as the people of God and in particular communities of people within Israel, towns or villages or whatever, to organize themselves around the principles of the covenant And as they do that, as they organize and live out the covenant, what they're doing is relationally reincorporating the poor who are, like you said earlier, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Mm
0: -hmm. So just just a little digression. Give me the little relational poor. Unpack that for me for a moment.
1: Yeah. So um, in... In the way that the Old Testament talks about poverty, um, the words that are used um, reference a number of things. So they certainly reference material lack and hunger um, and weakness. But they also reference things like vulnerability, oppression, injustice. So the cluster of words that are used for the poor in the Old Testament, include a range of things from weakness and hunger through to injustice and oppression. Um, but then the widow, the orphan, and the alien are used as a as a kind of catch all, mm. a, a symbol of who the poor are. And all of those people are relationally disconnected. The widow's lost her husband. The orphan's lost her parents. The alien has lost her community. Um, and I think if you follow that through in, for example, the book of Proverbs, or you could do the same exercise in the Psalms, you see that um, poverty is multifaceted and includes lots of relational components to it. So one of the Proverbs talks about the rich having many friends, but the poor kind of being on their own. That's the lottery winner's um, testimony, isn't it? I never Mm. knew I had so many friends when I won the lottery. But Mm. when you have nothing, people abandon you and walk away from you. Mm. Um, And I think that sense in the Old Testament that poverty is um, a relational category is also where modern development thinking um, has landed, that poverty is relational and community based and all modern Secular engagements with poverty alleviation would, um, talking about development, not so much about emergency aid, but long-term development would all be using community-based development strategies Mm. and trying to engage with the community. So I think Old Testament Israel got there thousands of years earlier.
0: Mm. I mean, that is fascinating, actually, that the, um, if you like, the the biblical message on this is... Is quite in sync with modern contemporary thinking about how to care for the poor.
1: Well, I think it is, and I think what you see in the covenant, um, for example, the laws of gleaning, the the whole community has to not harvest to the edge of the field, edge of their wheat fields, or not go through their olive groves more than once. The whole community has to do that, and then that allows the marginalised. Uh, to come into those fields, it, and that, that wouldn't work if only one person did it. The whole mm. community has to its culture. Together. Yeah, and what you see then in the Book of Ruth, I mean, Ruth is doing lots of things, mm. but one of the things that Ruth is doing is showing you how the covenant works out for a widow and an alien, or widows and an alien, mm. and you get the the Deuteronomic covenant being worked out in practice as gleaning and the kinsman redeemer laws reincorporate Ruth and Naomi into the community of the people of Bethlehem. So at the beginning of end of chapter one, they're marginalized. At the end of chapter four, Naomi is sitting at the center of the community mm. with everyone gathered around her. So it's a beautiful move from exclusion to inclusion through the story of the book. Mm. New Testament? So in the New Testament, I think you see the early church starting to struggle to work out what it means now in an urban setting, not a land-based kind of farming community in Jerusalem or you know mm. in Corinth or Macedonia. And they're starting to work out, what does it mean for us now as the people of God to take responsibility for the poor? And I think that you know, widows and orphans, but particularly widows, feature a number of times, right at the beginning of Acts, the early church is trying to work out, how do we care for the widows? in our community. And again, you see very clearly in Acts and also in pastoral epistles, that that's a corporate, um, a corporate thing. The church corporately as, as a local gathering is taking responsibility to care for the widows. Um, so first line of responsibility, care for your own family. 1 Timothy 5. Yeah. But what about the widows who don't have family? well the church now feels a responsibility as a gathering to care for those um, who are part of the family and then i think you know galatians they have a sense of responsibility not just to the church family but to any that the lord kind of brings into their sphere of influence Mm. i care for the poor especially those in the household of god
0: Mm. And that's going to play out as an individual level and a corporate level.
1: Yes, and I think, I think the challenge in this space for us in Australia or in the UK, um, particularly, is that the value of a government safety net in our countries is quite strong. Mm. So in Australia, we have this wonderful thing called Centrelink. Um, you know, you've got a persist to get help from Centrelink. But if you do persist, there is help there. There is a safety net.
0: Yeah. I mean, often I find in my engagement with people when they come to, um, to ask for help um, as a local pastor, it's often, well, helping them relationally and helping them navigate social security network that actually is there and is quite good but impossible to navigate yeah Yeah.
1: and that's a beautiful way of practically loving people but for most of um most church families in most contexts around the world um the church is operating in a place where there isn't much of a governance safety net or any you made
0: the observation the other day even the United States has much lower safety net provisions than the UK or Australia. Well,
1: that's my understanding. And, um, you know, as I observe that, I look at, you know, big conservative evangelical churches in the States and they often have very extensive um, ministries, both practically to people within the congregation, but then also out into the wider community.
0: And so a better developed um, practical expression of what they're doing, but potentially also a better theologically thought out expression as well? Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Bible
1: makes it clear that if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ... You care for the poor because that reflects the heart of God, and that if you are a gathering of those kinds of people, you will um, want out of love to care practically for those who are in your church family and in your wider community mm.
0: um, yeah, you made the observation in your presentation the other day that um uh, it would be lazy application to jump straight from the application to Israel and apply that to Australia, yeah
1: yeah, so I think you know, we need to be careful with our biblical theology. Um, Israel as a nation cared for the poor um, to jump from Israel as a nation to Australia as a nation is is a misstep isn 't it We need to go from the people of God in the Old Testament to the people of God in the new testament i 'm I'd be delighted for Australia as a nation to care for the poor. I think that would be a good and a wonderful thing. But uh, we can't abrogate responsibility of caring for the poor to the government Um, as local churches. We do um, have a responsibility to think about the material, practical needs of those whom God has entrusted to us. And that might mean very, very different things in different contexts in the slums of Nairobi. It might be around um, hunger and um, malnutrition in my suburb in Melbourne. It might be around loneliness mm. and divorce and isolation and all sorts of other kinds of social needs. Mm.
0: What does it mean to say the gospel is good news to the poor? Mm. So if we think about the
1: nature of poverty as fundamentally flowing out of broken and damaged relationships, if poverty at its core is a relational thing that is a consequence of a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with other people, and a broken relationship with God's world then actually the message of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel message itself, is the very thing that brings healing and reconciliation to those broken relationships. So when Jesus comes in Luke 4 and says that he's he's quoting Isaiah, he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, um, I think... We sometimes have a slightly lazy application of that and think, well, the gospel is good news for the poor because that means that um, nice people will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then those nice people might go and help care for the poor. Um, that, I don't think, is what the Lord Jesus is saying. I think he's saying that the the very act of proclaiming the gospel Um, and then people believing in Jesus and following him is healing the fundamental brokenness that lies at the root cause of poverty.
0: And at that point, you're right on the, if you like, the fulcrum of the title of your presentation of why church planting is the solution to poverty.
1: So I think... Church planting as a solution to poverty was really a provocative, um, just trying to get people thinking. Um, Obviously, I think it's more complicated than that. Um, But yes, I think that um, we need to hold on to the confidence that the gospel message itself Um, people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then being gathered into confessing communities that in and of itself will start to transform the poverty of the poor if God's people are doing their job right.
0: How have you seen that happen in practice?
1: Well, we had the great privilege of seeing informal settlement pastors in Nairobi um, come into training at our college Um, start to rethink their theology. For for many of them, that meant um, reassessing their prior commitment to some prosperity messaging. But then, you know, if you're going to let go of prosperity theology, you need another message for the poor in your church. And essentially what that looked like for informal settlement pastors was to start working with their church community to help them to care for each other. So I got a beautiful letter from one of the first students in that program who um, was in really the poorest informal settlement in Nairobi. Um, I had visited him. His church was completely destitute and he'd started a very small savings program with members of his church. Um, And he was mentored by a CMS Australia missionary called Joe Radkovic for a number of years. Joe and I then lost touch with him for a couple of years um, and he wrote to us a little while later and said that what had started off as this tiny little savings program with just a few people had now expanded to the point where they had something like forty or $50,000 in circulation. They'd put, um, I think it was something like 10 children through high school. They had six church member families, children in university. They had a collective of widows who were supporting and caring for each other. Um, And that he had then taken this message um, that he learned at our college and um, had engaged with, he said, two and a half thousand pastors across six countries in East Africa. Um, Now, what a
0: remarkable story, which has got to be better than starting a free chemist shop in a slum. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so.
1: And I praise God for that. I mean, that that has all happened um, through some some training. But really, that pastor has just um, taken his own initiative, put into um, practice the principles that he learned. He's by far the best person to work out what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in Corrigocho. And praise God, he's done an amazing job at it.
0: Now, what about the issue of um, campaigning for social justice versus hands-on caring or preaching Christ? Um, uh, and you, you referenced a paper that Broughton Knox wrote on this topic.
1: Yeah, so Broughton Knox...
0: Um, former principal of More College. For,
1: former yeah. principal at Moore College wrote a, a paper long time ago in which he was uh, arguing that the reason that Christians should care for the poor is because of compassion, not because of justice. And that paper has often been quoted or used as if to say that Broughton Knox didn't believe in social justice, and that therefore he didn't think that Christians had a responsibility to care for the poor, which is extremely unfair. Because the point of the paper was Christians should care for the poor out of love. Mm-hmm. So he was arguing that Christians should care for the poor. So it's unfair just on the basis of the paper. I think I've mean, never met Broughton Knox, but reading his biography and talking to those who knew him, uh, I've heard that he had a remarkable ministry personally of caring for poor people who came mm. to his house. Mm. So the charge that um, Knox didn't think that Christians should care for the poor is is unfair and clearly not accurate. But I think what he was saying was really similar to what I was hearing from more college faculty members. Caring for the poor flows out of our godliness as uh, an obedience to the love command, so compassion, in his article. And um, then we need to work out what it means to express that, not simply as individuals, but also to express it as local gatherings, keeping that corporate component that I think both Old and New Testament point us to. Mm. How's all this thinking changed your practice Um, Well, it certainly changed my practice as a theological educator um, and as someone who's seeking to equip long-term gospel workers. um, What I'm wanting to do for our CMS missionaries is encourage them to think through carefully and in depth what the Bible says poverty is, what caring for the poor in biblical perspective might look like.
0: Because lots of them, when they go to the field, they're going to confront it immediately.
1: Yes, a vast majority of, of our, our gospel workers would be serving in contexts of um, either absolute or relative poverty. And often that starting to live in a poverty context is one of the biggest causes of culture shock and ongoing cultural stress. And so thinking through really clearly what our responsibilities are, what God's word says into this, um, I think is important. And Um, Certainly for many of our gospel workers, this can feel overwhelming. Um, It's easy to get sucked into kind of white savior syndrome and to think that, you know, we have a responsibility to fix all the problems in the world. But, you know, I can't fix world poverty. And I don't believe that world poverty will be fixed until the Lord Jesus comes back. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be caring for the poor and, Working to proclaim the Lord Jesus to the ends of the earth. And as I've said, I think that will make a difference to the poverty of the poor.
0: Thank you so much. For, I mean, there's lots, lots, lots more to talk about, but we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming and sharing this with us this morning. Oh, it's been a great joy to, to be able to chat. Thank you, Dominic. David Williams has been my guest. David, the principal of uh, St. Andrew's Theological College, show, St. Andrew's Hall um, in uh, Melbourne. And uh, they, of course, are engaged in training up the missionaries for the Church Missionary Society Australia to go out and serve all around the world. You've been with us on The Pastor's Heart, and we will look forward to your